Throughout this Gospel of John, Jesus has these running conversations or disputes with the religious leaders. He's been having one in this chapter 5 here. Ever since, in the opening verses, we're told that he healed this man by the pool of Bethesda and that he did that on the Sabbath. You know, as we read these conversations, and we find a lot of them in John, lengthy disputes between Jesus and the religious leaders, uh, it's as though they're putting him on trial. They're questioning him closely. Uh, they were unhappy with him for healing on the Sabbath. But they were also happy with the fact that he was acting as though he had some kind of special relationship with God. They were very astute by seeing that, because he did. He called God my father, which was not something that Jewish people would do. And they believed he had no right to heal on the Sabbath, because of course, in their view, this was work, which was forbidden. And they especially believed he had no right to refer to God as my father. This made him equal with God. In the previous passage, just before this one, Jesus set forth before the leaders some reasons why it was right for him to refer to God as my Father. He showed that he and the Father are one, uh, that there was a unity between him and the Father in everything. Whatever the Father does, the Son does. The Father raises up the dead, so does the Son. The Father has life in himself, so does the Son. They do the same things, and these are things that only God can do. He pointed to the fact of these things, and this demonstrates Jesus' full equality with the Father. And this is the thing that bothered them most of all, and ultimately what brought them to the point of crucifying him. Now, in the balance of the chapter that we're looking at this morning, as though this actually were a trial, Jesus produces witnesses. Uh, he can and has spoken of himself before, and he will again. Uh, but here he says that if he bears witness of himself, his witness would not be true. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that it wouldn't literally be true. Of course it would be true. Uh, but it's just another way of saying that it wouldn't be accepted. It wouldn't be accepted as true. It wouldn't be uh, believable or objective. So, of course, a man is going to speak for himself. So, for their sake, he presents others to bear witness of him. He says that they might be saved, that they might believe. Just have to stop step back and think about what's happening here in this conversation and all these others and think about what's going on. This is whatever they think of him. This is the eternal God, the creator of all things, the great I am who comes to stand before these men who are accusing him falsely. He's presenting his case to convince them so that they might realize and accept who he really is. This is absolute sheer grace and nothing else. He could destroy them all in a moment. Uh, these are sinners and rebels uh, against his authority. They hate him. They hate him, and he knows it. They deserve judgment. He doesn't need to explain anything to them, but he does. He has mercy on them, and he says, he says all this that they may be saved. That's remarkable. And he mentions four witnesses that will testify concerning who he is. The Father, John the Baptist, the works that the Father has given him to do, and of course the scriptures. And we'll consider these four uh, this morning. 
First of all, the Father. Jesus says here in verse 32 that there's another who bears witness of him. And he doesn't mention who this other is, but we can tell from other parts of the passage that he's probably referring here to his father. Some have thought perhaps John the Baptist as well here, or maybe the Holy Spirit, but it's probably the father he is referring to here. And of course, the father has borne witness of him. Um, He bore witness to Jesus at his baptism, didn't he? When the voice spoke from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And of course, really, he was bearing witness all throughout the prophets of the Old Testament, over and over again, bearing witness uh, to this Christ who was to come. And Jesus perfectly fulfilled all that they said about him. And Jesus says he knows that his witness is true. Well, of course, he knows his witness is true. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. God cannot lie. Uh, So he puts his father forward as one of his witnesses. Uh, But then he turns in verse 33 to John the Baptist, another witness. And we see here how Jesus takes another opportunity to honor John in the way that he speaks about him. He calls him the burning and the shining lamp. You think the Lord could say that about any of us? (laughs) That we were a burning and a shining lamp? He had wonderful things to say about John the Baptist. No one like him among the sons of men. What a statement. What a commendation from the Lord himself. No one like him. And John gave his witness concerning Jesus. It's back in chapter 1 and other places in the Gospels. He said, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. That was John's testimony concerning Christ. He's a powerful witness. Uh, He was a man who was highly regarded by everyone as a prophet, so much so that the religious leaders were very careful about what they said about him or said concerning him because everyone considered John a prophet. But Jesus qualifies the witness here of John in this way, saying, I do not receive testimony from man. Of course, really, A finite man is not fully qualified to bear testimony concerning the infinite God, the creature for the creator. And Jesus didn't need John's testimony. He didn't need need anyone's testimony, really. He was doing this for them. He says, I mention this, that you may be saved. That's the purpose in what he's doing here. And remember who Jesus is talking to here. Again, he's talking to largely the religious leaders, his attackers, his accusers, his enemies. But he tells them, he says what he says, that they may be saved. This is a remarkable statement. You know, um, those of us who have Reformed convictions and believe in Reformed theology, um, we have difficulties. with statements like this. Uh, We understand God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We believe that God chose, he chose unconditionally. There's no uncertainty as to who will be saved in the mind and plan of God. But when you have a statement like this, what else can we think 
he's speaking anthropomorphically, yes, but what else can we think? But there is a desire in the heart of God that men would be saved, that all would be saved. A desire that men who will ultimately be lost may be saved. That's what he seems to be saying here, is he not? It's, it's in the Old Testament as well. After the Ten Commandments were given, remember what he said to Moses? Oh, that there were such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commands always, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. Is not God expressing a desire that these men, as we understand what Hebrews and, and the Pentateuch say about these men, most of them were evidently unconverted? Oh, that they had this in their hearts. And remember, of course, he, Jesus is talking here to his enemies. Some of the men probably who are going to be responsible for his crucifixion. And he wants them to be saved. He says these things that they may be saved. It's a good question for us to ask ourselves. Do the people that hate us the people who give us difficulties, do we have that kind of love for them? We should. We absolutely should. That's the love that turned the world upside down in the first century. And nothing less will turn the world upside down now. So John is one of his witnesses, great witness. But he says, I have a greater witness than John. And he goes on to talk about the works, the works that the Father gave him to do. This was the purpose of the miracles that Jesus performed. They were to be a witness, a testimony, a confirmation of who Jesus was. Of course, they were an expression of God's compassion for the suffering. Of course they were. His mercies are over all his works. But God doesn't always heal everyone all the time, does he? Uh, this was a special uh, outpouring of his mercy in this way as a witness, as a testimony. This is who this man is. And that's the main purpose throughout the Gospels. Particularly here in John, the miracles are referred to as signs. They are signs, a sign pointing to Jesus, who he was, bearing witness. Hebrews chapter 2, the writer is commenting upon so great a salvation God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles. That's what they were. I think the most conclusive statement regarding this whole matter about the purpose of the miracles was by Jesus himself. You remember at the beginning of his earthly ministry in Mark chapter 2, he talks about, uh, we find rather, the healing of the paralytic. And before he healed the paralytic, before he had done anything, he looked at him, the scripture says, he saw their faith and he said to the paralytic, your son, your sins are forgiven you. And many of the religious leaders there, a number of them there listening, were amazed and thought to themselves, this man speaks blasphemies. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Of course, they were right. On this occasion, they were absolutely right. If they'd only stopped there. But then Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, said to them, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And then he turned to the paralytic and said, I say to you, arise, 
take up your bed and go to your house. And that's what he did. This is the clearest evidence that I know of in scripture for the purpose of the miracles. Um, Jesus is telling them, he's telling us, this is why all these miracles take place. That you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. In other words, the Father has sent him. And he is this one who has authority to do what only God can do. Only God can forgive our sins against God. <laughs> it's quite obvious, isn't it? Only God can forgive sins. And they understood that immediately. And Jesus says, I'm doing this so you will know who I am, that I am this one, God the Son, the Word become flesh. The amount and the kind of miracles that Jesus did over and over again simply demonstrated who he was. They said, didn't they, show us a sign, show us a sign. He was showing them signs every day, up and down the country. Every time he turned around, he was showing them signs, pointing to him, pointing to who he was. They didn't want a sign. And isn't it interesting that no one ever denied the miracles that took place? We know of no place where they were denied. All they could do was try to discredit them by saying they were the work of the devil. The works that the Father gave to the Lord Jesus to do, these were a powerful witness declaring Jesus to be who he is, God the Son. But then he turns to his fourth witness, and this, these are the scriptures themselves, and most of the time in this passage really is devoted to this. Why do you think that was the case? Why did he devote so much time to talking about this particular witness? His father was certainly a greater witness. The works. Well, the scriptures, of course, were where the religious leaders placed their confidence, wasn't it? It was the main basis upon which they considered themselves to be God's people. They were entrusted with the oracles of God, the very word of God, the scriptures. And history records they took very good care of them. That's why you have such meticulous uh, and uh, manuscripts available uh, of these uh, scriptures because they considered it uh, the highest priority and privilege. They boasted that they were people of the word. Uh, and therefore, of course, they felt that they were better than others because they had and honored the scriptures. Remember how they demeaned the average people? Uh, this crowd that does not know the law is a curse, they said. We know the law. We have the scriptures. We have the lawyers. They're not like us. We know the law. We know the scriptures. Of course, they were completely wrong about the scriptures. That was the problem. They boasted in them, but they were wrong. And so Jesus spends a lot of time. You know, one of the most common phrases that Jesus uses throughout the Gospels in speaking to these men is, have you not read? Have you not read? Do you know that the scriptures say? Did you not read this in the scriptures? Over and over again. Why? Because this is where their boast was. This is where their confidence was. And he's pointing them. Well, let's look at the scriptures. Haven't you read this? <laughs> And they apparently haven't read with understanding. When he told them something in the scriptures and they didn't understand or forgot entirely, he was kind of poking them, pointing them always to the scriptures. 
This is interesting. They, they, they were so big on the Sabbath and so big on the scriptures. And Jesus was focusing on these things all the time. Healing on the Sabbath. We think it was just an accident that he always healed on the Sabbath. No, he was, he was confronting them, confronting their error. Why? That they may be saved. That they could see what they were doing was wrong. He never rebuked them for spending too much time on the scriptures overemphasizing the scriptures, as sometimes liberal theologians will say. No, he rebuked them for misunderstanding the scriptures, for contradicting the scriptures. You can't spend too much time in the scriptures. He was rebuking them for distorting the scriptures. You say your confidence is in the scriptures, but you're wrong. You don't really know what they say. Have you not read? Have you not read what it says here? And they obviously didn't read with understanding. Jesus starts talking directly about the scriptures here in verse 39. In the translation that I normally use, the New King James, it says, you search the scriptures. But I like the translation here better. I think it's better in the imperative and either are possible. Search the scriptures, he's telling them. You, you, you have your confidence there. Well, search them again. You think that in them you have eternal life. They are they which testify of me. Devotion to the scriptures is a wonderful thing. But it's futile if we don't believe the witness that is there concerning Christ. It is more than futile. It is condemnatory. To know the facts of the Bible and what the scripture says is not enough. There must be a willingness to believe in Christ, the one that the scriptures reveal to us. And you see what he says in the next verse, in verse 40 here. But you will not come to me. You are not willing to come to me that you may have life. And here is really where the heart of the problem is. You're not willing to come to me. You will not. You will not. You're not willing. It's a rejection of Christ. We find Jesus saying this to the religious leaders in a couple of other famous places, Luke 13 and Matthew 23. In both places, similar wording, Jesus says, how often... I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. And this is always where scripture places the blame for a person being lost. No one's going to stand up at the judgment and say, you didn't predestine me, that's why I'm not saved. Ryle sums it up well. Man's salvation, if saved, is entirely of God. Man's ruin, if lost, is entirely of himself. You were not willing. And because they were not willing, of course they didn't have the love of God in their hearts. They didn't really want the love of God in their hearts. They didn't know God. They didn't know Jesus. They wanted praise from man. And that's what Jesus goes on to tell them in verses 43 and 44 here. They wouldn't receive he who came in the name of his father, but others coming in their own names they will receive. They wanted to seek honor from one another. That's what they were really interested in. Honor from one another. To be looked at, to be thought of as high and special. They wanted to be approved and accepted by one another. That's a dangerous, dangerous drug. But they weren't interested in God, not the God of the Bible. They cared for something else more than they cared for God. Again, Ryle has some very, very powerful words here. If a man is not thoroughly honest in his professed desire to find out the truth, 
if he secretly cherishes any idol which he is resolved not to give up, if he privately cares for anything more than God's praise, he will go on to the end of his days doubting, perplexed, dissatisfied, and restless, and will never find the way to peace. Powerful words. Very true words. We are all, by nature, idolaters. We don't worship and love God alone, not by nature. No one does. That's what Paul means when he, Romans, he quotes the Old Testament. No one seeks after God. Well, we would say, well, we're seeking after God. Here they are. Well, yes, we are. By nature, no one seeks after God. Apart from the grace of God, no one seeks after God. If there weren't what the theologians call efficacious grace, no one would be saved. No one would be saved. And if we don't turn from our idols, then we will be as Ryle describes here. The religious leaders wanted to be praised and honored by men. In other words, they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, as Paul says in Romans 1. And that's the essence of idolatry. To love and adore the creation, this world and its lusts, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And then Jesus told them something which must have been very painful and hard for them to hear, must have provoked them to anger, that Moses was the one who was going to testify against them. Moses, in whom they trusted. Remember they said to the, to the man born blind, he said, you are his disciples, we are Moses' disciples, we follow Moses. But they didn't follow Moses, Jesus says. They didn't follow him. They didn't really believe in him. They didn't really believe what he said. If they had, they would have believed in Jesus. The Pentateuch is pointing to Christ. It's all pointing to Christ. The law, the sacrifices, the prophecies, all pointing to Christ. But they rejected Jesus because they had first rejected Moses. But the amazing thing is, and this is the amazing thing to think about, friends, they didn't realize it. They didn't realize it. The powerful, delusive nature of sin Oh, how we need to pray that prayer that David prayed. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. They didn't realize. They were talking to God in flesh. They didn't realize. So Jesus says, if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And they couldn't. And they wouldn't. So Jesus humbly and patiently presents to them here all the evidence that they could possibly need for them to believe. But they didn't believe because they didn't want to believe. And that's the way it always is. That's the way it is today. Evidence is not the issue. It's not because there isn't enough evidence for the resurrection. It's not because there isn't enough evidence for the Bible. Evidence can be helpful and we use it, apologetics. But nobody is lost for lack of evidence. Paul makes it clear in Romans 1. He speaks of the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. 
The whole creation is bearing witness continually. There's a continual symphony going on. The creation is singing the fact there is a God who made all this. This didn't just happen. Our conscience is telling us. Everything is telling us continually there is a God. It isn't even because there aren't enough credible Christians. Of course, you hear that sometimes. Nietzsche's famous uh, bitter, cynical comment. You ever hear that? He would have believed in a redeemer if his followers looked a little more redeemed. Well, that's a clever statement, and there's a lot of truth in that. Uh, no Christian that I have ever met has been all that they should be. We are not all that we should be, but that's not the reason people are lost. It's not because we're not more involved in doing things for society. The problem is the heart of man. It's deceitful above all things. Men love darkness rather than light, not because there wasn't enough evidence, but because their deeds are evil. That's the problem. And it will always be there until God changes it, until the Holy Spirit comes and implants a new nature and a new heart within. Apart from that, there is no hope for any of us. So no matter how much or how little evidence any of us may have, if by the grace of God we recognize who Christ truly is and also recognize the sin that's in our own hearts and turn to Christ and cry out like that man in the temple that Jesus talked about, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's all we can do. And that's all we need to do. Coming to God as the moral and spiritual and ethical paupers that we are being willing to turn from sin and to receive the free gift of God's mercy. All these things that these men were not willing to do. They were not willing. But that's the way of faith. That's the way of peace and the way of salvation. If that's you today, then you're forgiven of your sins. If this Savior is yours, if you have called out to him as that man in the temple did, then you're forgiven. Jesus said that man went down to his home justified. That man. If that is not the case for anyone here this morning, then please don't follow the blind example of the religious leaders. But that dear man in the temple, recognize that the Lord will have mercy upon all who call upon him. That's why he came. He was saying all these things. I mean, <laughs> I've just been remarking and marveling at this statement. These things I say that you might be saved, Jesus said to them. He says the same thing to us, that we might be saved. He has given us this book. He has given us this message this morning, that we might be saved.